if you, if you look at the world at an atomic level, just accepting and coming to see that there is an equal amount of divinity in every atom. Mm. And then you sort of play that out into what the world is and you're like, oh wow, like every aspect of this entire world is divine. Like that's what we mean by oneness, that divinity is infused within creation. And it creates such a strong basis for humanitarianism or environmentalism, right? Like there's no possibility of discrimination on the, or supremacy on the basis of a concept of such deep oneness. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making our world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining me and us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, I hate to begin such a hope-filled podcast episode this way, but I must because we cannot ignore what is happening in the world around us. Y'all, another week in America means more needless gun deaths and more mass shootings. Over the weekend, 10 people, 10 precious humans were murdered and a dozen injured at the Lunar New Year Festival in Los Angeles. Then. A day later, seven more were murdered at another mass shooting in Half Moon Bay. Yesterday, as I was preparing for a podcast, I looked up the gun violence statistics. Two of the numbers that stuck out were the 2,667 gun deaths and the 37 mass shootings that we have had so far in 2023, 23 days in yesterday when I checked the numbers. One day later, as I prepared to record this monologue, I checked the numbers again, not even 24 hours later. We were up to 2,800 gun deaths and 39 mass shootings. Are you fucking kidding me? Friends, we must face the truth that this is not normal and that we don't have to live like this. No other peer country on planet Earth lives like this, not even remotely close. There are solutions that we, as politicians and as citizens, that we actively ignore and steps we refuse to take to make our children safer, schools safer, Grocery stores safer, movie theaters safer, New Year's celebrations safer, etc. Now, Shannon Watts is not my guest today. She's already been on the podcast and she's incredible. But please make sure you're following past podcast guest Shannon Watts and her organization, Moms Demand Action, online, on their website, on their social media to learn about more ways that you can advocate today, right now, for a safer America for all. Again, we don't have to live like this. No one is forcing us to live like this. We can and must make changes. And again, I did not want to start out the podcast this way with such bummer news. 
but we also cannot ignore what's happening. We must move forward with purpose, with passion, with love, and with so much giving a damn. I love you all, and I know that you'll do these things. I know that you will fight for a safer America and a safer world. Friends, my guest this week, I have an incredible, incredible, incredible human joining me on the podcast today. Simran Jeet Singh is the executive director for the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society Program, and he is the author of an incredible book called The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. We also both sit on the board of the Justice Film Festival together, an incredible organization that I love and that I'm helping uh, in really cool ways during these days. He is a visiting professor of history and religion at Union Theological Seminary and a Soros Equality Fellow with the Open Society Foundation. And if all of that is not enough for you, in 2020, Time Magazine recognized him among 16 other people that are fighting for a more equal America. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and he is a columnist for Religion News Service. Simran is an all-around badass, and in this conversation, we talk about his upbringing as a Sikh in America and specifically in San Antonio, Texas, the loads of racism he has experienced during his life, how the Sikh faith guides him each and every day, what we, all of us, regardless of what religious adherence or no religious adherence that we have, what we all can learn from uh, the Sikh faith and our Sikh siblings, and so much more. This is a brilliant conversation that I can't wait for you to hear. Before we get into it, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Simran Jeet Singh. Let's go. Simran Jeet Singh, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We have several mutual friends. Um, I don't know if you know, we haven't actually talked about this. We sit on the same board for the Justice Film Festival. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we have a that's lot right. of we have a lot of uh, people in common. And your name over the years, especially since moving to New York, has come up over and over again. And then I got to know your book and your platform. And I'm really not only impressed with who you are and what you've done, but what I want to spend a bunch of our time today exploring once we get past the formalities. And I want to know about your growing up days and all the things that have informed you and made you who you are. I've just been so impressed with how you handle yourself in the face of, yeah, all kinds of xenophobia and racism and just a lot of the things that you as a sick man have to deal with living in America. And I, I admire you so much, even yeah. not knowing you all that much. We'll get to know each other, but I admire you and I just appreciate who you are and what you bring to the world. Yeah, appreciate that. That, that means a lot. And I, you know, before we got on the mics, we were just talking about our kids and challenges that they face. And, you know, part of part of this experience that I'm realizing and I've realized over the years is we, we all face our own challenges. And, you know, I 
we we got to figure out how to do it together. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, we do have to figure out how to do it together. This is a kind of an interesting world. I think there's so much. I've had lots of conversations. Lots of the conversations that I've had on the podcast over the past couple of months have veered toward just optimism, long-term optimism for this country hmm. that we live in. But in the short term, yeah, it's just so difficult to in, in my opinion, we'll get into a bit of that today because I, I want to I want to learn and gl- I want to glean from your hopefulness and optimism that comes probably some of just you being who you are, but also your faith and the way that that informs how you live and how you speak and how you cast vision for uh, the people that you have influence over. Um, so let's we don't have a ton of time. I could spend I already know I could spend hours talking with you. Maybe we'll do more in the future. We've got an hour today. I want to make the best use of our time. So. A lot of who you are and what you do and how it expresses itself in the world in various ways comes from all the way back from the beginning, your parents, where they emigrated from, how you grew up, the kinds of things you experienced, all those things made you who you are today. And maybe because the book we're going to discuss and for part of our conversation is very much about your life and faith sort of intertwined. Maybe let's do this, and I don't usually do this, but maybe before we get into the who, what, when, where, and why of your life, growing up, all the things you experienced, give us, you wrote an amazing book that I really enjoyed. I found, I am, I am, and we'll get into this a little bit, I am a Christian, a very reluctant Christian mm-hmm. uh, these days. We belong to uh, two different faiths that have a lot of, at, at their purest form, Christianity its purest form, not what we see at large in culture today a lot of times, but there's a lot of overlap. I think we have a lot of, we are heading in the same direction, what we want to see happen in the world and how we're trying to live our lives out. So um, let's begin by discussing this book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Uh, Why did you write it? Where did that sort of come from? And yeah, let's begin by talking through the book and we'll get to some of your story as we're going through it. So I guess a lot of people have written books um, that sh- shouldn't write that shouldn't have written the book. A lot of people that haven't written books should be writing books. There's just like <laughs> there's so many books being published each and every day. Yeah. Where did it start for you to write a book? It's a big undertaking. My book agent that has been waiting for a book proposal, finished book proposal for me for quite some time, uh, will tell you how probably how frustrated they are with me. Yeah, what was the process of writing this book? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It, I mean, it was um, uh, a labor of love, is I think what a lot of authors say about them, about their book projects. Um, you know, for me, for me growing up, uh, there weren't um, any any books that represented the the people of my community, and and one of the challenges there was because of people's ignorance, uh, we faced a lot of racism. And, and in my head, there was a one-to-one equation of, well, if people just knew who we were, then our lives would be better. And so it, it had always been a dream of mine to in, insert um, some knowledge, some awareness about my tradition in the mainstream culture, a book being one, one medium. Um, but as I, as I got older, I became nerdier. So like books, books became my thing. Uh, so, so, the, so the dream became uh, you write the book. And, and I think part of what uh, really k- 
kicked it off. Like I, I really started writing in earnest in 2016. And there were two really important things that happened in 2016. One is my, my daughter was born. Um, and the other one was Trump was elected and became president. And, and I was looking around this country and looking around the world and seeing how, how much pain people were feeling, um, how hard our lives felt. Uh, thinking about my daughter's future and, and you know what I wanted to create for her, yeah, um, and and it really became this like uh, really strong feeling inside of me that it was time to start sharing these stories to help build empathy and, and awareness, um, and also to share some of what I learned about how to deal with difficulty, including you know the different kinds of marginalization that I felt that my communities felt. Um, and, and some of the answers that I found throughout that process. So, so that was really the, the big driver for me was the combination of all the difficulty around the world, the pain, the division, um, and, and thinking about, well, if I really care about my daughter, like I want to be a part of that change. So 2016, your daughter was born. Yes, a very, in lots of ways, just a very traumatic year. Lots of stuff happening that I never thought would happen before. And maybe that was ignorance or naivete on my part. But all of a sudden, there's just a lot of things happening in our country that I just never thought were possible. Mm -hmm. You know, fanaticism that I'd never seen before. Um, so 2023, your daughter is now six or seven. How is that? This is kind of an aside. This is a side note, not really to do with this. But I'm wondering, because we started out our conversation off the mics talking about parenting, like, how has this writing process, your now sort of elevated platform, people know who you are, lots of people follow your work, and parenting through 2016 to 2020, and really Trumpism has not gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Literally this past week, uh, you know, he's at uh, Diamond's funeral and Pastor Mark Burns at a funeral, leads this, you know, this charge and this chant for reelecting Trump in 2024 and making some wild claim that Diamond is up in heaven asking <laughs> Jesus to give Donald Trump the 2024 presidency. So Trumpism is not gone. Now, I, I, I also want to acknowledge that Trumpism and this, this culture that is, he didn't create, but he sort of gave permission to be that way. Uh, they're not the majority of Americans. I want to put that out there. I know that. I do I've had a lot of amazing conversations with the folks that starts with us and other organizations trying to make sure people know that most Americans are not like that, but they happen to be very loud and uh, it's hard to get away from it. So how has raising a child uh, in, because based on the dates, you, you, you didn't, when you all got pregnant, you probably didn't know things were going to sort of pan out that way. Um, how is raising a child in these days? been for you? What is it as expected or has it been harder or how are you communicating what's happening in the world to your, I know six, seven-year-old kids. I, I've, I've had three at that age. Like, they're very curious, asking a lot of questions and we're already trying to instill values and ideas and talk them through what is good and what is bad. Does evil exist? And what is, it, what is, what is happening in the world? Right? Yeah. So how has that been for you and your partner, your wife? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think before we became parents, I mean, it's not it's not that racism is new, and right. it's not that I hadn't experienced it before, and I knew that my kids would have to deal with it, and so that that sort of it was already on our minds as as something that as a challenge uh, that we'd have to work through. Um, the pandemic wasn't on our minds, and and that's a different kind of 
challenge. And I think part of what we learned through parenting is a lesson that I've learned at different moments in my life, which is you can't control the world. Mm. You can't control what happens. You can't control how people treat you. Um, you can do your best to create interventions. You can do your best to be proactive. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can only really control what you control. And, uh, you know, in my tradition, we refer to that as hook'em is the word. Um, and, and part of, I mean, especially for me, during the height of the pandemic, when it felt like all I wanted for the safety of my family was to be able to know what I needed to do to keep them safe. And, and you know, we didn't have testing early. We didn't have uh, knowledge about how the virus spread. Yeah. I mean, like that lack of knowledge was really paralyzing. And there was an experience that I had through that, which was really surprising to me, which is once I let go of that insistence on controlling everything and needing to know exactly how everything works, uh, there was actually some some solace in that, some liberation in being able to say, okay, like I am going to accept humbly um, that I am not in charge of everything that happens in my life. Yeah. I'm in charge of certain aspects, but like there are things that I need to let go of and accept for what they are. Um, and, and learning to do that and learning to do that with my kids has, has been really powerful in, um, in, in creating a mindset that enables us to deal with the difficulty that comes our way, right? Like there, there's a level of acceptance and a level of engagement and like being able to discern what falls within which category um, is, is a really important tool uh, for, for dealing with the challenges that are all around us at all times. That's super helpful. And it kind of actually plays into, again, what we were talking about before we started recording with schools and stuff like that. Like raising kids is so, so rewarding. It's the best thing I've ever done. And it's also the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but my now 14 year marriage to my wife, piece of cake <laughs> compared to raising children because that, because of what you precisely just pointed out, there is this constant both for my personal life and these children that I have been entrusted with, three of them, three amazing young people that could become, they could, they could do incredible uh, things in the world. They could become incredible activists. They could create a new technology that does X, Y, Z, or they could become a mass murderer. You yeah, know, like yeah. there's so many different directions they could go. And it is almost paralyzing until you find that freedom you talked about. It's almost paralyzing. Like every time that I talk to them or yell at them or don't address a need in the right way or tell them to leave the room because they're being obnoxious when really they needed a hug in that moment. All those decisions that we make daily as a parent. And then on top of that, they're learning. I mean, they're, they're very aware of what's happening in the world. Not as aware as you and I are, but I talk to my kids through things that are happening in the news and culture, both like in our city and beyond. Um, it's difficult, yeah. but it's also the greatest privilege. And yes, there is some freedom. You talked about this freedom that comes in not knowing, not controlling this virus, right? Like that's been a hard thing for us to pass. Cause again, totally the first year, year and a half, I was, we, didn't do much with anybody. We were very, because we just didn't know and the vaccines weren't available for kids yet. And so we didn't want to, even as vaccinated people pass something along to them. There was so much unknown. And we still live very carefully, much more carefully than many of our friends do. Um, but what does it look like to be careful, protect ourselves, protect our neighbors, protect our loved ones, but also 
I'm going to, after this is done and I pack up and we say goodbye, I'm going to walk back out on the streets of New York where something terrible could happen, whether it's a public transportation accident or an act of violence that I could get in the caught, got in the middle of. And what does it look like to, again, still be careful, still live carefully, but walk confidently through life and not be paralyzed by the unknown. Um, it's quite a fascinating journey, both personally, but also as a parent. Um, I don't know if you guys plan on having more, like, it's just, it just feels it's a, it's both a freeing thing to not, uh, try to control everything, but also very sobering. Like there's just a lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, you know, I've been reflecting on this a bit over the weekend, actually around some themes that you're, sh- you're sharing here. And, um, you know, there to to a degree, it's it can be, and it, for me, in, in certain moments in my life, it's, it can be really easy to let go of um, the, you know, what what in spiritual terms we would call the attachment to the self, right? right? Like you're, we we get obsessed with materiality, but like we can check ourselves and like sort of get regrounded and be like, okay, I don't need these things that I so desperately want. Happiness is not going to come out of owning certain objects or being proximate to certain people or whatever, right? Like that's, we, we know that's not how life works, but with loved ones, it gets harder. Like at least with kids for me, it's more complicated because the attachment to them is really strong. And, and maybe here's one way to say it for, for me day to day, I don't feel like I'm on like an emotional roller coaster, right? I've been able to find some level of equipoise, like the world's on fire, things are hard, but also it's okay. And like, I can find inner calm. Yes. But when my kids are struggling, like that's where I feel like the internal ups and downs because you know, my daughter has a stomach bug right now. Like I felt really sad for her the last last 24 hours in a way that like doesn't even totally make, like she's fine. She's not, it's not a life-threatening disease. It's not gonna have a long-term impact on her. She's just a little low on energy, but like, for me, like that's where my heartstrings get pulled. And so trying to develop a sense of that balance of like, you can love and you can care, but also you don't have to be so tied up in the the emotional ups and downs so that you're, you, you can sort of maintain a level of balance. Like that's, it's a, it's a hard thing to maintain sometimes, especially for me, at least through, through the kids. Yeah. That, I mean, it is, and I don't want to, we don't have to keep going here, but I'll just kind of conclude this part by saying it is very hard, but I think it's super worthwhile because I also want to, because you and I are both involved in different ways in helping ourselves and helping others become better people by giving a damn, by looking to the sick faith and what that can teach people that adhere to sick faith and not, but there's stuff to learn there. Like, because we are doing that, we owe it to our partners, our kids, our family unit to like figure out how what we're telling everybody else, like how does that come home? Mm, yep. How does that, right? Because I I can very easily, sh- you know, shout so many good things, uh, share so many uh, 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 excellent ways of living with all the people out there and use, ex- you know, spend all my energy preaching to them, teaching them on social media, at events, on the podcast. But then when I come home, they get the leftover, you know, stressed yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. burnt out. And, and, and my amazing, exceptional wife and partner, Rebecca, she's so good at reminding me that like, hey, they deserve that. The people out there deserve 
the best that you can give, but so do we. Yeah. So like, make sure you're bringing that centeredness that, that, uh, Hey, we need to be in this for the long term. Mm. like bring that home with us here as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by, uh, your sick faith on a few different levels. One is as I, you know, thought about and looked into, well, and read the book and looked into it a bit in preparation for our conversation, I'm a Christian, but I'm a universalist. Um, to me, that's the only way, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, that is the only way that someone could, in these days, with all that we know and with all that we see happening in the world, um, I might be going a bit too far here, but it's the only way to remain in a, a faith adherence today is by recognizing that we're not alone mm. and that somehow, some way, in the grand scheme of the universe, like, as Ramdas said, we're all just walking each other home. Mm -hmm. Now we're doing it in different ways. I have amazing Baha'i friends and obviously tons of Jewish and Muslim and Christian friends. And I don't have many Sikh friends. And I'm excited to sort of explore this with you to see what, how, why it's so important for uh, people that adhere to the Sikh faith and not adhere to the Sikh faith, what we can learn from it. Because I found tons of help and hope as I read the book and as I studied more. Um, so two questions here, this is a double parter. One is, can you explain in your terms, not extensively, but what is the sick faith? And two, what about it keeps you in? Mm. Because I find it, and I, I'll, I'll preface that by saying, I, you know, I, I, I introduce myself as a reluctant Christian because so much of what is being played out in the world, and I do have, there are things about even the, from a doctrinal uh, theological standpoint, there's a lot of that rubs me wrong about Christianity, traditional Christianity. And so, yeah. So what is the sick faith and what is most attractive about it to you? What keeps you in it and going? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I'll, I'll start by giving a little, a little background on, on the sick tradition and then, and then please share um, what, what draws me in. Um, so, so the Sikh religion, it was uh, developed about 500 years ago uh, in a region called Punjab, which is Northwest India and modern day Pakistan. Um, and so we're, we're, we're looking at a place um, and a time that's actually not that far away from us. I mean, either geographically or uh, historically. And, and in fact, the, the cultural conditions were very similar to what we see in our time today, which is you have uh, immense cultural mixing, um, a lot of social tension, a lot of hierarchy, a lot of suffering, a lot of unhappiness. Um, and, and a man comes into the world. I mean, he comes as a baby, but yes. he, becomes, he becomes a man. Um, and he's looking around and he's like, man, there's, there's gotta be a way to, to bring people together and, and to, to live in a way where we're happy instead of, hurt all the time. And he offers this philosophy that's based on a concept of interconnectedness, of oneness. That's, that's the foundation of Sikh teachings. And, and essentially what he's saying is, you know, you, you all are seeing each other as adversaries, as foes, you know, we're working with dualities and hierarchies and ideas of supremacy. And he's like, you know, what's the difference between you, me and you? Like we, we come from the same place. We have the same light is the, is the metaphor he uses regularly. Um, and that becomes the basis of this beautiful 
tradition and system, which um, which then takes this idea of oneness and says, well, if we really are interconnected, then shouldn't we be loving towards one another? And if we really love one another, shouldn't we show up for one another? And so the the three, I think, nodes of Sikh philosophy are, are these ideas of oneness and love and service. Uh, and those are, I think, the enduring aspects of the tradition that that draw me in. Like I, I, I looked at this, I was born into a Sikh family. My parents immigrated here uh, in the seventies. I was born in the eighties. Um, I was born into a Sikh family and I kind of grew up with the tradition. So like that's what brought it to me or at least what brought me in. Right, right. Um, but it was in my uh, college years that I started studying different religions, including my own, uh, and was looking at this worldview and was like, oh yeah, that, that makes, I mean, leave alone like what I think is beautiful and uh, creates the kind of world I, I want to see. Like that's also true, but just the the basic logic of it uh, made real intuitive sense to me. Like we all come from the same place. Like we're all made of the same materials. We are interconnected. We've, we've seen that play out in different parts of our lives. Um, and the height of human experience is love. And the expression of love is service. So like all of these things, like they play out in a really uh, organic way in part because I've seen some of this in small micro moments of my life and to understand that there's a way and to see people who have found a way through this tradition and, and similar traditions um, who have found a way to have those experiences as an everyday experience of their life to see how joyful they are, to see how caring they are, to see what kind of contributions they make. And like, that's, that to me is like the real draw, like the understanding that this is something that's available to all of us at every level. This oneness that you're discussing, would that be oneness in Sikhism? Is that similar to a universalism in that, when you say oneness, is that oneness within the Sikh tradition or one like all of humanity? Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's oneness across all humanity, and, and different traditions describe this uh, differently. Um, you know, in Christianity, often now we'll, we'll see it as universalism. Um, I think there's um, in other traditions there are um, different frames that, in some ways, feel deeper uh, than universalism. Um, mm. and, and and I think especially if you get to even within Christianity, more mystical or Gnostic yep. uh, expressions of this, um, which which I think is, you, you look at other mystical traditions and it feels like in, in Islam, it's this concept of wahadat uh, al-wajud, the singularity of all creation, or of, of all existence is, is the translation from the Arabic. Um, that, that You see that especially in Sufi expressions of Islam. Um, and and I, the, the way that I think about it, um, just as a way of making sense of it is, um, if you take, if you, if you look at the world at an atomic level, just accepting and coming to see that there is an equal amount of divinity in every atom. Mm. And then you sort of play that out into what the world is and you're like, oh wow, like every aspect of this entire world is divine. Like that's what we mean by oneness, that divinity is infused within creation. And it creates such a, strong basis for uh, 
humanitarianism or environmentalism, right? Like there's no possibility of discrimination on the or supremacy on the basis of a concept of such deep oneness because you and me sitting here as we're talking, like you are just as divine as I am. And like, how could I judge you in any way for not being divine, right? Like it's, it's such a powerful way of living. I guess that changes everything when you, you and your line of work and the work that you do and put out in the world, um, it changes in a massive way how you talk to people and not before even talking to them, how you look at them, even if there's someone that you disagree with. Like, yeah, I guess, I guess a question for me that I would love to hear you kind of respond to and wrestle with for a second is like, as you're looking at American politics right now, I understand and I'm more excited than ever to get people to not focus as much on what politicians are doing we can't really get away from it. It's being, you know, blasted into our eyes and ears and brains on social media and off social media every single day. So it's really hard to get away from it. But I do think that what we're doing, what you and I are doing with our neighbors and in our neighborhood and locally is way more important because that's stuff we can actually control. But there is, I think there is importance to also pay attention to what our elected leaders are doing, whether we elect them or not. How does that, how does your faith in that oneness and that seeing divinity in everybody. How do you process through seeing uh, a George Santos or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert or a Matt Gates or a Jim Jordan? And I could pick on some, you know, some people on quote unquote my side as well. But how do you, how do, how do you process through when you see just horrible behavior, horrible words, ideas, um, some of our elected leaders that got reelected recently to the House of Representatives, they had a they had a very visible hand in making the January sixth insurrection happen. They they wanted it to happen. They helped orchestrate it, and we elected them again to you know some of the highest offices in the land. How does your faith help you as you look and see bad things happening and bad people winning seemingly? How do you process through that knowing that they have? the same amount of divinity as you have in you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying it's hard. Like, it gets really hard sometimes. And one of the um, one of the big stories I sort of share and lay out in my, in my book is about my challenge in seeing the humanity in a white supremacist who massacres yes. people in my community. And um, I mean, the, the honest truth is it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you and I are sitting here, it's it's easy in a way, right? Like we have a lot that we can share and you have tattoos on your fingers and I don't. And I'm like, cool, like we're different, yep. but we're similar. Yep. And sometimes I look at people like the ones you described, and I'm like, man, what do I have in common with you? Like, it's so hard to see. Like, especially when you see people who are using their power to, hurt and manipulate innocent people. Like that's really hard for me to stomach. Uh, and I think that's hard for a lot of us. And um, I think the, the sometimes um, the best answers to questions like these come to me from parenting. And it's like, how do I talk? How, how do I talk to my kids about these issues? And sometimes that's like super simple, uh, but also really profound and, and insightful. Um, and, and the way that I talk to it about my, talk to this about my kids is like, no one is bad. 
but their actions can be bad, right? You separate the individual from their behaviors. Um, and at a, you know, at the level of a toddler and adolescent, that's easy to follow. Um, but as you get older, it gets, it feels a little simplistic, right? Like, yeah, like no one is bad, but then what if you take someone like Hitler? Like, wasn't Hitler bad? And like, that's, that's where things get really difficult, like right? Because like he did horrible stuff. Like who is worse than Hitler in, in that sense, right? Um, and, and part of my, I, I'll share two things in terms of where, where I've learned to work through this internally um, and, and retain this, I mean, this really strong conviction that everyone is inherently good um, is, is this understanding in our tradition that we are able to harm people when we don't see the divinity in them. It's not that there's anything in our heart that's impure, but it's a darkness within our perspective. Mm. Like we're just not able to see. And that happens for all types of reasons. And some of those could be personal trauma we go through. Some of that can be systemic or institutionalized oppressions that we then internalize, right? Like why are we racist towards people? It's not because I was born racist. Like I've learned that over time. And that's made it more difficult for me to be able to see the humanity in certain people because they're seen color. In the cases of the people you gave as examples, like power can often be something that corrupts us internally and makes us unable to see the divinity in other people because we are so focused on serving ourselves and, and we close ourselves off to others. So I think there are all sorts of reasons why this happens and it's helpful for us to sort of trace that through. But I think what's actually the most effective method that, that has helped me in these situations um, is, is to engage with the practice of introspection, which is what spirituality has a lot to offer us Absolutely. here, right? Like if I can learn to see how I've internalized different ideas of supremacy or racism or misogyny, uh, then it becomes much easier to see how someone else who I'm otherwise judging like then I'm not judging them as much anymore because I'm like, I see, I see how you've come to be the person who you are and I don't agree with it. I'm gonna hold you accountable. I'm gonna fight against it. Like I hate that behavior, like all of that's true and I can still see your humanity. And like walking that line is so hard, especially when their behaviors put at risk innocent people, including yeah. yourself, right? Like that's, that's really hard. But to, but to sort of maintain that commitment of I'm going to live in a way that honors both. Um, yeah, but finding a way to walk that tightrope, I think that's the delicate balance that I'm always trying to manage. I love that. I mean, super helpful, super tangible sort of steps for people as they're observing that. Because I think we all, we don't maybe, so many people don't end up where you've ended up, which is doing the hard work of walking that tightrope. A lot of people just say, Fuck the tightrope! I'm gonna fall off one side or the other, <laughs> yeah, right? Like yeah, I just, yeah, totally. I'm not even gonna do that hard work because it's hard. Because you said it's hard work yeah. to give a damn in a way where you see everybody as having divinity with it within them and everybody being inherently good. I just heard this quote over the weekend that I cannot stop thinking about. Um, do you know who Father Gregory Boyle is mm -hmm. from Homeboy Industries? Yep. Just a hero of mine, an amazing human. And I came across this clip that he was he was doing an interview. And the interviewer asked, is there evil? And Father Boyle says, I believe in horrible because I have eyes, but I don't believe in evil. And homies have taught me that. 
and I can't unlearn it. And the interviewer says, what have they taught you? And he says that everybody is unshakably good. And this next part, these next two sentences were, I just, I literally cannot stop playing them over and over my head and figuring out what the implications are for my life. That everybody is unshakably good and we belong to each other. I've learned to stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. Mm. Yeah. So I hear this on Saturday evening. I run across it, played over and over and over again. Um, I sent it to a good friend of mine in Nashville who has this amazing Anglican parish that is doing so much good in, in Nashville for, for refugees and all sorts of amazing marginalized communities. And he says, that blew me away. I'm going to use that to start mass on Sunday with. And I can't stop thinking about it. The people that I mentioned, right, that on the face of it, if you just take their words and their behaviors and they're lying and they're manipulating at face value, I just want to write them off. Yeah. If, they, if I ever got an opportunity to speak to them, I would reject it because of how I might react in their presence. But then you, I read this, I listen to you, and I think about this quote. What does it take for Father Gregory, who has seen some of the most horrific things ever, heard some of the most horrific things ever, witnessed horrible things for that person to say, I've learned to stand in awe what people have to carry rather than in judgment of how they carry it. So what would it look like for us to, as we give a damn, as we figure out how do we, in our short few years here, how do we make the most lasting impact possible? It would change everything really to look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and be in awe. And this is even hard for me to say right now because so much of what she says and does is despicable to me. What would it look like for me to be in awe of what she has to carry? What has she gone through? What, what things has she, what ideas and words and phrases and uh, ways of living has she picked up along the way that, have, that are now playing out now in her life as she's a in the House of Representatives? Like, how did she start out versus how she, where she is now? George Santos, someone that pop, like doesn't seem like the guy can tell a, a truth. It's all lies. <laughs> But, but, but do you think George started out that way? No, at one point, George was uh, an innocent, good boy that then went through a series of things over the course of his life to the point now where he cannot tell the truth. I feel like it changes everything, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I love that quote as well. And um, what's, what's sort of standing out to me as, as I'm thinking about it is... It's, it's essentially a choice, right? Like, how do, we, how do we choose to see the world? And, and our gut reaction so often is judgment, in part because that's how we're socially conditioned. Like, we're taught to judge one another, in part because it's easier. Um, and in part because that is uh, an armor that we can put on that feels protective. But I, but I think if we, if we pause for a second and, and sort of look through the cultural conditioning... Uh, and just ask a really simple question, right? Uh, as, as we reflect on our own lives, um, how do we feel when we're in awe of something? And how do we feel when we're judging something? And like the, the, the simple answer is like, it's the difference between positive and negative. Absolutely. Right, like you can choose, right? You can choose to be experiencing this world through a lens of positivity or through, through the, a lens of negativity. You can have an optimistic outlook, or you can have one that's focused on pain. And like in a context where 
so often we're stuck in the pain and don't know how to get out. Like this is a simple shift that we can all make. And like, you know, one of, one of the challenges uh, that people have with this possibility, one of the challenges people often feel is, well, is it, are we buying into complacency by, by letting things go? Or are we uh, sugarcoating realities? And I, I don't think it has to be either or. Like bo- both can be true, uh, that we choose to be optimistic, that we choose to be in awe rather than in judgment and still have a commitment to give the damn about having holding people accountable, about going forward and, and moving towards justice anyway. And I think, at least for me, through the sick framework that I've learned, uh, but it's not, I don't think it's exclusive to my faith or even to religion. Like there are all sorts of ideologies that, that enable this. Like if you operate from a perspective of love, then justice is part of that, right? Like you have the ability to empathize with someone you disagree with rather than judging them. And you also have a commitment to hold them accountable to make sure that they're doing better so that they can then get into a place where they also have that experience of connectedness and awe as opposed to the, the pain coming out of judgment. I want to, we have a few minutes left in our time together today. Um, I want to go back a bit in time because we've talked present day for the past few minutes, but in your book, so much of so much of the book is not just the sick faith and how it informs and transforms lives, but again, there's these stories of your upbringing uh, and and the things you've experienced. And again, this is part of the reason I'm in awe because I I as a the son of a Guatemalan immigrant, um, I'm a little off white. I've experienced a fre- a little bit of xenophobia and racism in my life. You are a sick man with a beard and a turban, and you belong to a very, by and large, peaceful people and religion that for decades now, in in modern time, since a certain 2001 huge tragedy that happened here in our city, um, and again, you experienced it growing up as well. And I want to talk about a couple of those instances to see like how they informed you and how they changed you. But you've experienced so much of that in your life. Just walking down the street, you are going to get looks from certain people and they might just say a look or they might say something to you or make a comment to someone else about you. I'm sure you've heard so many things in your life about, again, before they even get to know you and your faith and how it has informed this beautiful life that you're trying to create, just your appearance Mm. sets some people off. Can you uh, go back to the time that you were, the first time, and this is a story you tell in the book, of the first time you were called a terrorist Mm. and why that happened, what happened, and how that uh, informed and changed you as a boy. Um, what were the things you learned from that? And how did that set you, uh, again, ultimately, every experience you've ex- you've had in your life resulted in you being here now on the couch with me on January 23rd, right? In yeah, 2023, yeah. everything is happens for uh, a reason and takes us a certain place. Talk about that uh, situation and what that did to change you for the good or the bad. Yeah, you know, I was um, an adolescent at a soccer game uh, and they were, the ref was doing our equipment checks. Um, and so it was just me and my teammates, uh, he was looking at our shin guards and our cleats. Then he gets to me 
uh, and he calls me a terrorist and wants to check my turban and talks about how, you know, he knows people like me like to have knives and bombs in our, and, and blow shit up. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm only 10, so I'm young, but it's also not the first time I've heard comments like that. But it was the first time that um, I didn't have any adults around and mm. that he was asking, I mean, he was asking to touch my turban, which I hadn't done at that point ever in my life. And even now, like, it's not something that I'm comfortable with. Um, but I'm a kid, he's an adult, I wanna play soccer, I'm with my friends, I don't know what to do. Um, so I let him, I let him pat down my turban. And I, I mean, I, I was so upset with myself for the next uh, several hours, several days, I think it was a few weeks uh, before I finally was like able to take it as a lesson and be like, okay, I gave in to somebody, somebody's racism, I'm not gonna do it again. Like that was a commitment I made to myself. And that's where I started to feel a little better. Um, and not long afterwards, um, I was in the locker room with some friends from my basketball team. Uh, and one of my friends pulls off my turban. Like we were play fighting, wasn't a big deal. Then he, he, he made a racist joke um, and then he pulled off my turban. Um, and I knew he was kidding with his joke. I knew we were friends, but I remembered that promise to myself that I was going to fight back next time and I just started fighting him. And and after the fight and our teammates pulled us apart, um, I remember thinking like that didn't, that doesn't feel right either. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting experience like within the, a year of my life where like I'm realizing that giving in doesn't feel like the right answer, but fighting back. And those were the only two options that I knew, right? Like that's the fight or flight model. And, and that's when I really started to think about like, is there, I mean, I know racism is a lose-lose game. Like there's no winning for right. anyone. But even then I was like, what do I, what do I, like this is gonna be my life forever. Like how am I gonna get to a place where I am satisfied with my responses in moments like this? And so that's when I really started to think about, I mean, again, I'm 11 years old at the time. Like it's not like I'm some sophisticated thinker, but I'm like, I, I, I need to develop a way to deal with these situations where I don't feel so shitty afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where I really started to think about, I mean, what now we might call in, in religious terms, a middle path, right? That's from, from Buddhist theology, but like, what is, what is a different way? What's an alternative? And I think part of what I've really come to appreciate, and I think this is true for all of us is like in a context where there's so much hardship, there are challenges all the time, and we feel so frustrated with our lack of options, right? Either we fight back, that doesn't feel good because we're angry and we're frustrated still uh, and we haven't resolved anything or we give in and give up. That doesn't feel good either because even then there's no change. So like, what is a way that we can stay engaged and stay committed um, without feeling like we are just going to burn out by constantly exposing ourselves to difficulty. Like that's, that's part of what I learned started to learn through that process. Yeah. And then a few years, so that's 10 and 11 years old. You're still, yeah, you're, you're about to become a teenager and you're figuring things out a few years after that. What, when you're 17 or 18, 2001, 911, yeah, yeah, were you living yeah. here yet? Or were you still in Texas? Still in Texas. Still in yeah. Texas. Right. Did things, I think I know the answer to this, but or I should, I should ask it this way. How did things 
intensify after that again, because first of all, no one should ever go after any Muslim person because of what happened on 9-11. The horrific things, the crusades and all the horrific things that still happen all the time as a result of Christianity should not be, I don't think, should not be put on the Christ figure and Christianity in its purest form. These are people that, again, were, were how did, how did uh, Father Gregory Boyle put it? They are unshakably good at, the, at their core, yeah. and they learned all these bad things and took their... So all that to say, like, I'm not saying, by saying this, I'm not saying that it's okay in, at all to go after or to speak ill about a Muslim because of what those, uh, what, 19 men did on 9-11. But you're not even Muslim, and people are relatively ignorant, not relatively, very ignorant about the Sikh faith, who they are, what they believe, uh, why they look the way that they do, why they present themselves the way that they do. So did things sort of intensify after 9-11? How did they intensify? And um, and what does it look like to be a Sikh here in New York City? A very diverse place, lots of religion, lots of, lots of religious people, lots of different kinds of people, but still there's a ton of uh, xenophobia and racism and all sorts of things walking the streets every day here in New York. So yeah. what has that been since 2001? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, um, yeah, the the intensification, I mean, it started immediately. Um, you know, it, in our house, uh, I mean, I just the, the basic timeline is the terrorist attacks happen. We're at school. I was in high school at the time. Uh, my mom cups, comes and picks my brothers and me up pretty much immediately, um, knowing uh, that... Osama bin Laden was the primary suspect and people were going to make a one-to-one correlation between his turban and mine. Um, and so she picks us up, we go home, we lock the doors, the death threats start that day. So, I mean, it was, it was pretty intense and, you know, as much racism as we dealt with until that point, I hadn't, I, I, don't, I, I can't remember a death threat and all of a sudden they were all around us. Like it was, it was very intense for several days. Um, we started learning about people in our community, in the Sikh community around the country being attacked, being killed in the racist backlash. So like as an 18 year old, on the one hand, I feel invincible. And I also feel like maybe my parents are overreacting, right? Like mm. what, are, what are people actually gonna, like maybe they'll, they'll say stuff to me, but will they actually do anything? And then we start learning about these attacks and assaults and murders and we're like, oh man, like, Things, things are totally different now. So, I mean, that that was a huge change. And I don't know at what point I made the, I made the connection of what was happening um, that overnight I had gone from being someone who was unknown um, and therefore like feared because I was different, right? Like that's, that's a certain right. kind of experience. Right. But now I was, people presumed to know me and I was feared because I was, like the spitting image of America's enemy. And that was, I mean, that experience was completely different from anything I'd experienced. Like now I'd walk down the street and people, instead of saying random, like random racist stuff, they'd say very specific racist stuff. Instead of like speaking out of um, annoyance that I was in their backyard, they'd be yelling at me to leave. 
right? Like that's a different kind and it would be angry and hateful. And, and people really saw me as a target of all of their frustration and vengeance for the pain they were feeling from 9-11. So like the intensity was really different and uh, the nature of it was very different. Uh, it was very specific. It was very hateful. Um, and, you know, that, it continued for, for years, um, you know, even as the country settled back into its rhythm, uh, the assumptions were still there, yep. right? The trauma was still there. Uh, I moved from Texas to New York City and I lived in Boston for a couple of years, but I get to New York City in 2008 um, and I'm excited because I'm like, this place is diverse. Uh, it's not Texas, like racism is behind me. And I get here and like pretty much immediately, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course racism is here. And I don't know why I thought otherwise. So I, I had all, I've had all sorts of incidents here uh, very similar to growing up in Texas. I wouldn't say it's any less um, verbal, physical. You know, one of my closest friends was uh, pretty brutally beaten. Um, he was a professor at Columbia at the time and a bunch of teenagers like ganged up on him, yelling all sorts of slurs. Like he broke his jaw and punctured his skin. I mean, it was it was nasty and... I, I don't know, like the, I guess what I'm trying to say is we, we tell ourselves a certain story of like racism is in certain places and not in others. And I think the reality is, and, and it's in, if we're being honest with ourselves, if we really want to deal with it, we have to face it pretty, pretty sincerely uh, that racism is everywhere. And, and I've lived that out firsthand and I've, I guess I've learned it the hard way. It's really tough. It's really, it's a really tough thing to navigate because uh, so many people think that oh, we live in New York City, we live in this like right, this leftist you know bubble, and it's all it's all lefties here doing leftist thing and blah blah blah, and it's just not true. Like I, I too have seen, I've seen because it's such a concentration of people, I've seen uh, more outright uh, xenophobic and racist things happen than any other place I lived. Then when I lived in Nashville, um, you know, during the, during the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, like, you know, uh, marches and the hundreds of arrests that happened to my friends. Like I've seen more of that happen here. And so you're right that it's just, it's everywhere and we can't ignore it. And we've got to figure out sort of balanced ways, right? As a boy, you, you, you discovered the hard way that giving in and letting them do their thing is also, doesn't feel good. And fighting your way through it also doesn't feel mm -hmm. good. So what? So that leaves us to really think intentionally through: How do we do this? Then how do we give a damn in a way that doesn't that doesn't alienate people more, but that also doesn't let them off the hook for the terrible things they're doing, and us calling them to a better way of living? You yeah. know, it's it's a it's a tough thing to navigate through. Um, as we begin to wrap up here today, I want to be very conscious of your time. What would your? I, I have uh, yeah, the, two more questions. What would your call to action be today? Obviously, for everyone listening, go read the book, The Light We Give. It's beautiful. It'll give you a ton of hope. I found it super helpful. Sick or not sick, it's a book for everyone. And I believe you wrote it that way. This is not just to, you're not trying to, what the sense I got was like, you were, there was never the, hey, come join what we're doing. It was merely saying, this is, these are the beautiful things that my faith have to offer everybody. These are, these are yours for the taking. These are beautiful principles that can help anyone. So for anybody that might be listening to um, a 
you might be the first sick they've encountered mm. through audio, right? Like there's just, although there are millions, tens of millions of sicks around the world, they're not as, they're not, a, most people don't even know what they believe. Most people don't know anyone personally who adheres to the sick faith. Right. So what would you encourage people to take from our conversation today? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I think, um, knowing, knowing your audience a bit and, and what you're about, um, here's, here's a thought. And I, I share this in the book a bit too, uh, but it's something that I think about a lot these days, uh, especially for people who are well-meaning, uh, thoughtful, uh, caring about others. Um, I think one of the one of the challenges we face as a society is we are really quick to point our fingers out at problems, uh, outwards to other people. Like, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's here's this problem. And I mean, it's good. Where I think we're understanding uh, injustices and inequities in ways that we haven't before. Um, and so we should keep that up. Like that's important. One of the things we're not so good at, and, and what I would offer to people. Um, is the practice of looking within and trying to understand, not not in a way to diminish ourselves or to me, to demean ourselves, but really to be honest with ourselves and understand that we have shortcomings too, um, that we have aspects that we can work on internally, and and you know the the challenges of racism and sexism and homophobia and, and all that ugliness isn't just out there; it's inside of us too. And so being. Um, being intentional about that, being purposeful about that and saying, you know, I want the world to be better, but I want myself to be better too. And, and those two things have to go hand in hand. That's that's something that I think a lot of spiritual philosophies would call for. And I've, I've really benefited from personally. That's really beautiful, that introspection. And it goes hand in hand with all that you've been talking about, this oneness, this finding the divinity in each other. You're also realizing that when you're criticizing a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Donald Trump or whoever, or Hitler, you realize that that potential is inside of you as well. Inside all of us, yeah. It's inside exactly. all of us. We are, you and I, today, we could go out and in three bad decisions, end up in prison for the rest of our lives, mm. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. we're so close to it all the time. And so rather than just always punching down on people uh, and saying, I'm better than you, I have a better way of living, my way is the right way, put ourselves on a level playing field and kind of call... I think it's easier to call people. It's easier to call people to your team mm -hmm. when you're on their level. Yeah. Not things you're saying and the things you're doing, but like when you're recognizing the 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 oneness and the sameness in each other, it's easier to call them over than to to be so high up, looking down on them and saying, "Try to get here because I'm better than you are." That's just harder to do. It's a harder call to action to make. Yeah. You know, one one way we don't we don't typically think about it this way, but I think it might be instructive. Um, is to think about this too as privilege. Um, you know, some people have had different challenges in their lives, and you've had your own challenges. But uh, as as you're looking at folks who are, um, you know, we say hurt people hurt others, right? People who are hurting themselves, like they are themselves hurting, and they're hurting other people. To recognize you might be in a privileged position to be able to see that. Uh, and to feel empathy for them in some way uh, and, and to open up your heart to them. Uh, yeah, I, I think that is itself a, a way of thinking about privilege that, that could change the way we interact with one another. This has been incredibly helpful. I mean that, I'm not just saying that. This has been a super helpful conversation. I loved getting to read the book. 
I loved getting to, you know, sort of prepare mentally for this conversation. And then you, you brought some really good stuff that helps me as a person, as the leader of this, whatever size, let's give a damn community. And then, uh, yeah, you've just, I think, I think your wisdom, um, is incredibly helpful. It's incredibly action oriented, right? It's not philosophical. It's very like, Hey, these are some really, these are some real time, really practical things you can do right now to change the complete trajectory of your life. So this is really helpful for everybody. Hope we get to do it again. Simran, thank you for your time. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your work. And I um, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks a lot. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Simran and me this week. Absolutely honored that you would be here. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this conversation with a friend or two or 10. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>